because it's the single most important thing you can do in a, in a growing organization. It literally defines your entire business. Welcome to the podcast B2B SaaS CEOs with me, Joseph Falsen, as your host. I'm the CEO and founder of VAM that helps sales teams close more deals and book more meetings. The idea to this podcast was born because one of my personal goals is to be a world-class B2B SaaS CEO and therefore I need to learn from the best. And I want to take you with me on this journey. Hi, my name is Hugo Wernhoff, CEO and co-founder at Cognity, and you're listening to B2B SaaS CEOs. Hi, and welcome, Hugo. Thank you so much, Joseph. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. It's 9.23 a.m. Uh, here in the United States of uh, Freedom. And uh, yeah, I'm feeling great. And let's dive into it. First thing first, who is Hugo? Please help me get the context of how you look at yourself. Uh, I'm a person who uh, loves adventure. I love exploring new ideas, new locations, new aspects of life, of myself, of my own thoughts. I'm passionate about education, the sector in which I work. I'm a dog dad, a regular dad. I have a wife. Uh, I love all three of them. Uh, I also love uh, history. I love running. I uh, love nature. I love being out, outdoors, just generally. I live in Colorado outside of Denver, a small town called Boulder, originally Swedish, and uh, I also love what I do, at least most of the time. And if we go into then loving what you do and what you do, can you please tell me, not me, but the listeners, what does your company do? Do the elevator pitch. Sure. So I am uh, the CEO and co-founder at Cognity. And at Cognitive, we've reimagined the textbook using technology, so textbooks used in schools. And we've created a more engaging and interactive way to learn for school students across the world. So as a student, you learn through a flow of interactions rather than just passively consuming text printed on paper, which is still the default in most schools. And all of these interactions that you do with uh, in Cognitive generate data that we in turn can use to improve your learning experience, visualize your progress, point you in the right direction, and also share with your teacher to inform their instruction. So on the teacher's side, you have a like a teacher cockpit, a complete overview of how your students are doing, where you may want to go in and support, which students are falling behind, where, and so on. Uh, we have customers in more than 120 countries from uh, Rwanda to Kazakhstan, Sweden, India, Colombia, uh, United States, among many other uh, places. We're an international team of about 120 people. Uh, most are in Sweden, uh, UK and the US. Yeah, I think you, you, cover, you covered it uh, also so the listener can understand that you are worldwide. Uh, yeah how it's many are and uh, like the customers are the schools and also Correct. it's from very young students up to more older 
right? Uh, so, so yeah, that's a great point. We actually, I would say that we primarily work with uh, say fourteen to nineteen year olds, so sort of high school, high school, and then yeah, school, yeah, pre high school and high school. Yeah, exactly. Good. Then we have it there, and uh, it's time to move on to the segment of five quick ones. And the framework here, Hugo, is that I will say a word, and you need to be quick. Like the very first thing you think of, the first sentence or word, are you ready? I'm as ready as I uh, ever can be. <laughs> Education. Underserved sector. AI. AI, long-term enormous promise for value creation in all sorts of ways, but also long-term existential threat to human civilization. So I'm, I'm on both ends of the spectrum on this one. Interesting. Uh, I, I maybe will go back to that later, but right now we are in the five quick ones. Okay, software as a service. Fantastic business model for a company, fantastic model for customers. I love it. The future of schools. Future of schools, probably not as different uh, to present day reality of schools as many people think. So they will continue to exist for sure. Uh, they will change. But uh, again, even in 20 years time, they will probably operate in a pretty similar way to now. Uh, one difference is that we will see more virtual schools, but that will still be the exception rather than the rule. And the last one, 2024. A perfect year. I'm an optimist. A perfect year. Wow. Okay. We're pulling the bow here. Nice. And it's time for the why. Hugo, why did you and your co-founders start Cognity? I've always been interested in... Uh education since growing up my uh, my mom was a teacher my grandmother was a teacher they were two big role models to me uh, growing up and then i started tutoring uh, younger students already in high school i sort of continued with that during uh, my university studies my co-founder that i met while uh, while at university uh, he was doing some sort of exam prep courses for high school students as a side project, we started uh, chatting. We decided to try to turn into a business. One thing led to another. And I'd say that through uh, that experience with, uh, with because our first business was an exam prep business where it set up core centers across Europe, Middle East, the United States. We had so much direct interface with students and it was just so incredibly rewarding and gratifying to help students to better learning because it's so closely linked with confidence, feelings of self-worth, how you view yourself, uh, your future life trajectory. So we fell in love with working with education and just uh, realized that this, this is what we, want, what we want to spend our professional careers on. Um, and then we looked for ways of creating uh, a bigger reach of impact uh, in education. And that sort of led us to starting Cognit in 2015. Yeah, I love the red thread here from from your own family to what you saw earlier to yeah, yeah powerful. Thank you for sharing. And uh, with this, I I want to talk about mistakes because I'm a strong believer in that the true way to learn is only through your own mistakes 
but maybe sometimes you can learn a bit at least from other people's huge mistakes. So I want to know uh, what's one of the worst mistakes you have ever made so far connected to business? One is that we got into the uh, hype of always raising money, always uh, increasing headcount, whether it makes sense or not. And I think it's pretty common for early, earlier companies or companies earlier in their life cycle to do that. Once you start getting that traction, you start adding, adding headcount, you start thinking of your company growth almost as headcount growth. So we over... We, I guess, over-invested, over-hired um, without uh, really having the revenues to back it up, which led us to having to reduce reduce team size, which, you know, obviously very painful for um, for the individuals who were impacted. This was back in 29, early 2019, but we went from, I believe, 80, 80 people down to 55, something like that. But also, uh, also it has long-term impact on culture and uh, trust in company management, rightfully so, I, I'd say. So that was a big mistake that I learned a lot from. And um, generally, I, uh, I'm a big subscriber to the pain plus reflection equals growth equation. The more pain you feel and the more you reflect on that pain, the less likely you are to make that same mistake before. And that there was for sure a lot of pain uh, in that mistake and a lot of subsequent growth. Um, but then I'll say one other thing, which is uh, more, in a, in a sense, more vague. It's just a reflection I've made lately is that when I look back across the past eight years of running Cognity, reflection I made is that most of what I spent my time on has actually been a waste of time. I've spent so much time on ideas that weren't actually good. Uh, I've spent time on trying to coach people that actually couldn't be coached, or at least I couldn't coach them. Spent so much time on getting into a market without the right level of research prior. Speaking about far-fetched partnerships that actually never made sense, and so on, and so on, and so on. So it feels like it's been 20% of the time that I've put in that actually made a difference. And I try to become more conscious of um, what do I, what can I spend my time on that really makes a difference for the goals that I'm trying to achieve, and what will have what will what will have the real impact on that. This last part was, uh, from my point of view, super interesting, and I need to follow up here with the following question: What have you learned there? To like, what, what sort of data points or quick wins can you do to easily see for yourself that you are not throwing away your time? One is just a simple principle to always act on uh, sub-performance or mid-performance in your team quickly. And that's something that is also painful to do. And a lot of people avoid doing it, but that's just one thing that you have to do because you tend to spend so much time on people who are like sort of not working out, but you're unsure you want to give them some more opportunities to prove themselves and so on. So that has been a huge time waste. Uh, another technique that I've started to employ is, is to uh, just go offline for a couple of hours every week uh, or every other week. I sit down with my notebook in some external location, typically like a coffee shop or a hotel lobby. Uh, or in an airplane if I'm out traveling, 
And I just start asking myself big questions. I start writing down the big questions on a piece of paper in my notebook. What, what could I do that actually makes a difference? What am I spending on time on that doesn't make a difference? What are the top priorities in the business right now? What do I really need to get done? And it can also be other types of questions like uh, uh, who, are, who are the super performers in my team that I have to make sure to retain? Uh, what are things that we as an organization are doing that make no sense? Uh, if I could uh, start uh, cognitive from scratch, how would I do it differently? Those types of questions too. But I'd say that that practice has, has helped me to, to eliminate some of the time waste, but it's just super hard. And part of it is that you don't know what will make a difference. Uh, but part of it is also that if you look yourself carefully in the mirror, you can probably identify a couple, you know, a number of things that are just, uh, you know, you don't even know why you are doing it or you feel a commitment to do it or you feel it's expected of you, but it actually makes no sense. I think you're spot on here because me and my co-founder talked about this last week and reflected of last year and what we have prioritized and developed. And we like, we want to do like 50 to 20 to 50% wrong, but like you said, not maybe 80, but you still yeah. can't project, etc. But you, you can get that cap down a bit. Yeah. Uh, uh, th- thank you for sharing. Uh, extremely interesting. And uh, now it's actually time for an external question. Because the listeners know that in my podcast, it's not only me who shoots questions. I let one or two people in every episode ask a question to the guest. This time you, Hugo. So now Caroline Solskjaer at Nuverka will tune in. And this is her question. Hi, Hugo. My question is, what are the biggest challenges in creating inclusion in the education sector so that everyone can get an equally good education regardless of needs? That is such a great question. Uh, I I love this question. I think it gets asked way too rarely. Inclusion in education sector is super important. It's also a very big and broad topic for a one to two minute answer, but I'll I'll just share some first thoughts. And first of all, I, I just want to give listeners an idea of, of some of the factors that historically and today close people out of success in formal education. They, they they vary from just learning variations like ADHD, dyslexia, dyscalculia. There's the autism spectrum, um, ethnicities, gender, sexual orientation, language skills is a huge one, not least here in the US where uh, I've met school districts. And these are you know, big entities with uh, 50, 100,000 students that have one third uh, of their kids who don't speak English properly. How do you make sure to include them? Uh, there might be interests, socioeconomic backgrounds that that come into play. And there are so many big challenges to solve because educational systems uh, have, in most cases, not been built for these groups, neither have the resources that are used or the assessment systems, the way that students are assessed and graded, which also create so much injustice. And all of these things put up barriers for, for these uh, different groups of, of of uh, individuals. But if I had to name three specific things I'd like to see changed, uh, I'd say number one is more investment into teachers. Just pay teachers better, bring teaching back to being a high status job because they are really setting the future for our kids and for the incoming generations and for the future of this earth. And great teachers are also great at catering to different needs in a classroom and to including 
including learning variations and what have you. Uh, second thing, just have the right resources out of schools, whether it's special ed assistance, having the right resources and equipment in place. And third is to have a conversation, upskill the entire ecosystem in inclusive education, whether it's education practitioners, resource providers, politicians, uh, and so on. But it's a tricky problem to solve, but a very important one. Caroline, thank you so much for the question and Hugo. Uh, a great answer from my point of view. We, we, like you said, in just short amount of time in a podcast here, like this is so broad question. Yeah, but I hope that uh, some that actually can take action on this will hear this. This also the input from you who is in it. Yeah, and, and of course, we also do what we can from, from our point of view. We have uh, invested a lot in this from... Uh, um, I'd say from day one, but especially during the past two or three years to just uh, support audio impairments, visual impairments, different learning styles, uh, and to just be mindful of of all the learning variations available when we build out our tool. And, and I think that's all the learning resources of the future should really have this baked into them. Great. And uh, you know what? Now it's time to talk some go-to-market. From one of my favorite topics. Yeah. And uh, now I want to dive down here in four different stages. Uh, and uh, stages. And in these uh, different stages, uh, I would like you to share the like main strategy and some things that matter the most for you. And the different stages is 0 to 100k in ARR, 100k to 1 million, 1 million to 10 million, and 10 million and your journey towards 100 million. So uh, let's start from the beginning, zero to 100K. Classic answer, but just find a product that customers in a large enough market are willing to pay for. Classic product market fit. And you would say that that would come actually that early, or would you say that zero to 100 is, is more of ICP and test shooting and the product market fit comes in the next step? I would uh, say that those are part of product market fits. ICP is part of the market you want to address and iterating is part of finding the solution that that market is, wants to pay for. Okay, so I, so I, I see them as the same thing. That um, from and, and that sort of uh, maybe gives away my answer to the second stage as well, because I think that you need to continue with uh, just finding and fine-tuning a product that customers are willing to pay for, so that you have that. That's what having an actual business is, right? Uh, you need to continue with that probably uh, well beyond the hundred k too, but and probably up towards one. Uh, a million euros because that that needs to be your main uh, focus so so basically if you combine them zero to one million euro is basically build a product that is big enough for a market and solve the actual need and fine-tune it until you truly can see product market fit yeah and you can you can do desk research that says that there is product market fit, but you never know until you get it validated by real money flowing into your bank accounts. And I would say that 100,000 euros is too little to have validated that because you can always do some evangelical founder sales and get one or two uh, odd deals in. You know, in. But um, in order to properly validate it, you want to have someone else to have made sales as well beyond yourself. 
and you want to have uh, you want to have had it validated by uh, by multiple different companies. Ideally, you also want to see uh, some amount of sales profitability, meaning that a salesperson pays a sales rep pays for him or herself uh, within a reasonable time frame, so that it makes sense to hire more of them. Okay, so so what I'm hearing now, we are entering the one million journey to ten millions. You have sold. Maybe you have one, two, six people that have sold, and now you have started to earn money from them, and uh, you have several customers. Basically, it's not just you hustling. What did you do then? What is the core thing now? Yeah, uh, what we did and what I think should be done differs a little bit, <laughs> but. Uh... Yeah. I'd say that the focus should be on getting right leaders in place that can own the respective function so you don't have to uh, do everything anymore. So typically, you know, obviously, in the beginning, you're, you're alone, you and your co-founders, you do everything. You might hire a couple of individual contributors, whether that's sales or marketing, um, what have you. But the, at this stage, you need to get people in who... Uh, can own their functions so that you can spend less time and focus on it. Uh, trust that they will handle it. Um, and when you do this, um, make sure to not default to promoting, say, the first sales rep to be the head of sales and the first marketing person to be the head of marketing. Because I see so many companies doing this and at times it might be a good thing. And at times it's the best thing you can do. Um, but you will also benefit from getting people in who have done it before. So you need a mix of, uh, of um, leaders promoted from within and the people who have been through the growth journey previously. If you don't and you rely on promoting from within, you will fall into so many pitfalls and so many traps that can be avoided simply by people having gone, been through them before. The other thing I'd say here is also switch uh, out leaders that can't handle the uh, the increase in responsibility uh, and do so uh, sooner rather than later and uh, yeah they're the going for the 100 million then what what is what is right now building the the right prioritizing the right way now from 10 to 100 we're only two years into this journey and haven't figured out our way to the 100 million yet. Yeah, I'll call you uh, in a few years, Joseph, and let you know the answer. <laughs> I don't have it yet, but I guess it uh, involves uh, going into additional markets and getting that right, which is probably a podcast episode on its own. Okay, so ba basically doing what what, what take, took you to 10, 10 million more upscaled and faster and uh, yeah all over the place probably a little bit of that yeah good and uh, then let's talk some outreach uh, one of the key things within classic sales outreach in all of their perspectives and i i don't want to know now how you are doing it i want to know your preferred way of being contacted in a modern buyer's journey Meaning, basically, if I say this person listening to this, what is the best way to do outreach to Hugo? How, what? Uh, it's going to be probably going to be pretty challenging. I get uh, 
lots of inbounds on both LinkedIn and uh, email every day, probably about 100. I don't read them. I get a lot of calls every day. So since a pretty long time, I don't answer uh, any uh, phone calls unless I have the number in my uh, in my phone book. So I guess the best way is probably to start a B2B SaaS podcast. Right? <laughs> now you're here. <laughs> okay. So so if we take away, uh, if we make this a bit more concrete, build some sort of relevant or personal brand or a channel that make you stand out more than just the average classic. That is what I'm hearing, basically. Yeah. And also, do you... Like, do you actually want to have a CEO as your your persona that you prospect on? Uh, I'm not sure because it's going to be a lot of work. And also, there it's very rare that I'm at all involved in any procurement of any B2B SaaS tools into Cognity. Um, so, yeah, I, I'd say find your a target persona that is relevant is obviously the first one. And it's probably very rarely the CEO, although... I can see from the reach outs that the uh, and and subject lines of emails I get that a lot of people think that the CEO is the right person to contact for uh, you know anything more or less but uh, it probably rarely is I li- I really like this input make sure that you really want to reach out to me as your persona like like you said uh, maybe if you're sent to small companies of course the CEO is each but it, when you are like you are bigger I don't think the majority should talk to the CEO, actually. I can actually sip it now because it's time for a topic of your choice. So now you can take a few minutes of something that you are nerdy and feel passion for. The floor is yours. Okay, so I um, I will then talk a little bit about recruitment. Partly because that it's such an interesting intellectual challenge, but but that's only part of the reason. More importantly, is because it's the single most important thing you can do in an in a growing organization. It literally defines your entire business. If you uh, if you are a couple of co-founders now, and in at some point in the future, uh, you are thirty people, you know, Everything that the company is will be defined by who those 30 people uh, are, and that will all be defined by how you recruit. So I think within recruitment, you need to realize, first of all, and be humble about how difficult it is to do right and spend a lot of time to improve your skills. I see it as three, three components to recruitment. There's first needs analysis. What kind of competences do you need to get on board? There's attraction. Can you attract the best candidates in the field? And the, there's selection. Can you identify who... Uh, the best candidates for that competency are and can you uh, through your selection process predict which ones will be able to perform at an exceptionally high level uh, at your company and for that specific role and you have to be graded all three to be able to build a truly great business Um, and i can pause there and i'm happy to dive into any specific part of it if you want me to recruitment need attract identify uh, so, what would you say is the hardest? I'll still probably say selection, because it's so easy to introduce biases in different ways. Like we see, uh, I've, I've seen both in Cognity and uh, other companies how uh, guys tend to hire guys and girls tend to hire girls. 
And um, I've even see, I've also seen data that uh, both women and men overestimate the abilities of men and underestimate the abilities of women. If I recruit for a role here in the US and I'd meet a Swede, we would have a lot of things in common. But does that mean that I'd give the person unfair, an unfair advantage compared to other candidates? Because it's easier for me to connect with the person. But, that, but obviously that has zero bearing on whether that person will perform or not. So you need to build really strong selection processes. Um, you have to question your biases. You have to build a really strong recruitment team that you work with. And you know you have to really know what you're looking for and make sure to evaluate that specifically. Always refer back to uh, to what you will want them to perform uh, within at the organization once they've come on board. Yeah, I think. And now, now I and now I'm happy with with this uh, with this segment and this topic, and uh, we can. Uh, yeah, we, we can because we don't you don't have so much time. You are a very busy person. So we put period there on this question and we are moving into the roundup. So I only have two questions left for you now, Hugo. And uh, yeah, the first one of the, these two is uh, now you're talking to yourself. If you would give yourself when you were a younger CEO, think 2016 or something like that, what are the top one to three things? that you would tell yourself that you now know that you didn't know? I'll uh, revert back to previous answers. And I'd say one is to hire more senior people earlier, even if they are super expensive. You'll just save yourself so much headache and save so much time and be able to move forward faster. And uh, I'd also say to think hard about what actually matters for for what you want to achieve. Uh, don't do anything else so become better at focus laser focus laser focus and uh, the very last question then for at least this time can you share one of your favorite life mottos i wouldn't say i have any life mottos but for this question i just say to be kind Um, i think everyone deserves Kindness. I think kindness is underrated um, in society generally, and I think it's it's very important to my personal values. I think it's very important in business too. And with uh, these words, we put period to this interview. And now, quickly, I shift in the focus to you who has been listening. Two quick ones. Number one: if you got value here from Hugo, please tell a friend or a listener to listen to this episode. And number two, press the subscription button. We have great guests coming here every week. And Hugo, a huge thank you for putting aside around 30 minutes together with me to help the community and me to keep on learning. Thank you so much, Joseph.